History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Mini Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is episode 72, The Ionian War. Last time, we cycled back to the beginning of Darius II's reign and honed in on the Aegean. In Lydia, the satrap Pesuthnes went into rebellion and had to be forcibly replaced by Tissaphernes, son of Hidarnes. Pesuthnes' son, Amorges, carried on the fight with Athenian support. Athens was bored in a brief interlude from Greece's Peloponnesian War, but soon found themselves on the receiving end of Darius II's wrath and an absolute beatdown in Sicily. The Athenian navy was all but destroyed, which created an opening for Sparta to destroy the Delian League and for Persia to reconquer the Ionian Greeks. After some back and forth, Tissaphernes and his co-satrap in Phrygia, Pharnabazos II, made an alliance with Sparta's Peloponnesian League. The Peloponnesian fleet and the Athenian general in exile Alcibiades spent 413 to 411 BCE retaking cities and islands for the great king. And that's where we left off right at the beginning of spring 411, when the Spartans brutally re-enslaved the oppressed chattel of Chios and were preparing for another year of trying to dislodge the Athenians. At the same time, a smaller Spartan army landed in the Thracian Chersonese on the northern shore of the Hellespont and defeated the Athenians at Abydos and Lemposcus. You might remember Abydos as one of the key crossing points for Xerxes' army on the pontoon bridge across the Hellespont at the outset of his invasion. 
Athens was able to rally and retake Lampascus. And who knows, maybe they would have been able to do more, but the Athenian people were a bit distracted at the beginning of summer 411. Last time, we saw Alcibiades sowing the seeds of discontent among the Athenian navy. The exile briefly acted as an intermediary between the Greeks and Tissaphernes, and he expressed the belief that the satrap should support an oligarchic revolution in Athens. He was not alone in this belief. After 21 years of on-and-off war with Sparta, and 60 years of conflict with their supposed allies in the Delian League, the wealthiest and most powerful people thought a new system was in order. The Peloponnesian War, especially the disaster at Sicily, had been so expensive that the wealthy had started subsidizing the state. Their continued wealth and power depended on greater Athenian military dominance, so they paid for the construction, supply, and crews of new ships, and for the mercenaries and equipment propping up the Athenian army. Some of them now wanted the government of the Athenian Empire to reflect this. They argued that the rest of the League only saw Athens as an oppressor, and wouldn't care what kind of government they implemented anyway. Abandoning democracy wouldn't see any real change in foreign affairs, or so they thought. Back in the city of Athens itself, the plan worked. 400 men had the backing of enough people and mercenaries to declare themselves a new government. The existing series of constitutional assemblies was abandoned in favor of a council of 400 that made all decisions. On the far side of the Aegean, things didn't go quite as smoothly. The Athenian navy had established a base in Samos to direct their ongoing Ionian war, much like Sparta had stationed its naval command in Miletus. In the run-up to the planned coup, the oligarch commanders of the navy had sent representatives out to Athenian subject cities in the northern Aegean and Thrace, and ordered those cities to establish their own oligarchic councils. They planned to do the same thing for the Samian government. The problem was, the Athenian fleet had always been a bulwark of democratic progress, and neither the sailors nor the commanders that valued them had any interest in the coup, so when it came time to bow to the newly established oligarchy and start listening to the members of the 400 who were in the fleet, they just refused. That means there were no Athenian ships to enforce the oligarchs' coups in other cities. The Spartan admiral that year, called Astyochus, tried to attack Samos at this time. But the Athenians were so busy with their political debates that they wouldn't sail out and fight. Samos was too well defended to try and land on the island, so Astyochus shrugged and sailed away. Ultimately, the Athenian fleet rejected the revolution and redeclared Athenian democracy in exile on Samos. While they were doing this, Astyochus and the Peloponnesian fleet fanned out to offer support to any former Athenian ally who wanted help in rejecting the oligarchs that were trying to take over their cities. 
Thucydides specifically identifies the island of Thassos, but says that it occurred in many smaller locales as well. I have to imagine Tissaphernes and the Spartan commanders in Miletus being one part confused and one part eager to take advantage of this situation as it unfolded. But one person in the satrap's court slipped out in the chaos. Alcibiades, famously pro-oligarch, had received a letter from the Democrats on Samos. They wanted him to join them and command the fleet. Alcibiades' political opponents were still in power as members of the 400, so he agreed to back the Democratic fleet in hopes that it would get him back into Athenian politics. This left the Athenian fleet in a very weird position. On one hand, they were now cut off from government funding and wanted to unseat the 400 from power. On the other hand, they were also pro-war against Sparta and Persia, and they needed to continue the war so they could raid the Anatolian coast and fund their own operation before they could actually get to Athens and spark a revolution. In preparation for this, the arm of the Athenian fleet that had been trying to defend the Hellespont sailed south to reinforce Samos. In Athens, the 400 were already fracturing within a few months. There were moderates who thought the 1% was too narrow, advocating for a council of 5,000 more like 10% of the total population. At the same time, the pro-democracy party still existed. Young men and foreign mercenaries alike briefly chased the 400 out of Athens and into the Piraeus the Athenian port connected to the main city by a set of long walls. In a bid to consolidate power, the 400 opened negotiations with Sparta, and by extension, the Persians. In Miletus, it was hardly less chaotic. The sailors and officers of the Peloponnesian fleet were restless. Tissaphernes would not authorize funds or support another offensive because the Persian fleet still wouldn't leave Phoenicia. Astyochus was looked down on because he wouldn't risk attacking Samos while Athens was divided, and when they did finally get around to attacking Samos, Astyochus and Tissaphernes called it off after Athenian reinforcements arrived. The Spartan commanders, correctly, blamed Tissaphernes for their trouble. He had been promising them a full-blown royal fleet for three years now, and it was still safely anchored to the south. Meanwhile, only marginal progress had been made with the Spartans' other commitment in the region. Up in Phrygia, Pharnabazus II was still expecting the Spartans to come help him when they finished in Lydia, but finishing in Lydia was taking much longer than it was supposed to. So the Spartans authorized 40 ships to see if Pharnabazus would prove a more useful ally, i.e. somebody who could pay the Spartans on time and fund some more ships to provide backup. The plan to accomplish this was convoluted. The Athenians were monitoring the coast, so the Spartans had to sail way out into open water and loop around Samos to reach the Hellespont. A storm broke up the fleet and forced most of them to turn around, but ten ships from Megara made the full trip and sailed right through the Hellespont, 
which they now partially controlled because of the capture of Abydos. These ships made a beeline to priority number two for any military trying to secure the region, Byzantium and the Bosporus. There, they supported another local rebellion and kicked the Athenians out, securing Black Sea trade in favor of Persia. But this didn't really satisfy the fleet back in Miletus. Alcibiades had just been elected general of a democratic Athenian navy, after Tissaphernes had saved him from a Spartan execution, and the sailors accused Astyochus and Tissaphernes of conspiring with the Athenians. It got so bad that a group of Milesian citizens attacked and took over the local Persian fortifications in an apparent bid for total independence with Peloponnesian support. The Spartan leaders were able to negotiate a peaceful resolution and remind the Milesians that they were only free from Athens on the condition they would play nice with Persia. But this wasn't a good sign. The Persian fleet had not been entirely idle. About half of the navy, 147 ships according to Thucydides, was in Appendus, on the Eurymedon River. Last we had heard, Cimon had claimed that city for Athens, so somebody must have reconquered it for Persia somewhat recently. The tension in Miletus prompted Tissaphernes to go south and meet with the Persian and Phoenician admiralty in Aspendus. But it was probably not with any real intention or expectation of bringing the navy into the war. It was just a gesture to try and calm the Spartans down. So far, the Spartans and the Athenians were just wailing on each other. Tissaphernes had already reclaimed and dug in at many of the most important Ionian cities, and in all likelihood, either he, Darius II himself, or the pair of them, were trying to wear down both Greek powers. It was imperative that Athens lose in the long run. The Delian League was a major obstacle to Persian political power, but it didn't do the Persians any good if Sparta could still influence Ionia either. But if they could both be worn down or pressed into Persian servitude, well, that would be something. And so it went. As the summer wore on and the Ionian stalemate continued... Sparta was at least making progress on the Greek mainland. They were closing in on Athens even as the 400 oligarchs tried to negotiate a settlement. They conquered the big island of Euboea, within spitting distance of Athens itself, and destroyed the small pro-oligarch fleet that was still in Greece. This prompted the Athenian army to revolt. They acknowledged that now was an inopportune time to revert to full democracy, but the expanded oligarchy was now 5,000 Athenians. This new government recalled Alcibiades and the fleet from Samos to defend the homeland. In early autumn, 411, entirely fed up with Tissaphernes' uneven pay schedule and being strung along with the Phoenician fleet, the Spartans finally gave up on Lydia altogether. They elected to move north and take the whole fleet to the Hellespont. With the whole fleet moving en masse, they didn't need to sneak around Samos anymore, 
but a storm still necessitated a brief stopover in Chios. Recall or not, Alcibiades and his compatriots commanding the fleet knew they couldn't just let Sparta take over the Sea of Marmara and its straits. Their limited control of Byzantium and Abydos was bad, but the full Spartan fleet would cut Athens off from grain shipped out of the Black Sea. Athens' native agriculture had been all but obliterated by the war, and that grain was essential to feeding the Athenian populace. So the fleet stuck around. At this point, the Ionian coast was just a mess. Individual cities had changed hands multiple times, pro-Persian or pro-Spartan rebels in pro-Athenian cities were moving to friendlier territory and vice versa. This led to a group of rebels from a city called Methima supporting an anti-Athenian uprising in a city on the island of Lesbos. The Athenians had been trying to blockade the strait between Lesbos and the mainland to prevent the Spartan fleet from moving north, but then they got dragged into this revolt, allowing the Spartans to just slip by and ambush a much smaller Athenian squadron at the city of Sestos and take the mouth of the Hellespont. As Thucydides puts it, Meanwhile, the Athenians... Deceived by their scouts, and never dreaming that the enemy's fleet would go by undetected, were tranquilly besieging Eresus. As soon as they heard the news, they instantly abandoned Eresus and made with all speed for the Hellespont. For the first time in years, the full Spartan fleet and the full Athenian fleet, now both in the ballpark of just 80 ships, squared off in a true naval confrontation near the city of Kinosema. The Athenians blocked the Spartans in at the Hellespont, a tried-and-true tactic, hoping to use the narrow strait to their advantage. It only sort of worked. When Sparta started breaking through the Athenian line, their formations mingled and Athens gained the upper hand. The Spartans retreated to Abydos, but losses were comparable on both sides. The next month or two saw a series of skirmishes and cities changing hands, mostly in favor of Athens. Alcibiades took a trip south to collect money and ships from the allies they still had in Caria, while the Spartans sent word for their allies to send more ships. Back in Lydia, the loss of the Spartan fleet sparked a flurry of independence movements. At least three Greek cities, including Miletus, evicted their Persian garrisons. Tissaphernes would be on his own for dealing with this, which he did, but his poor treatment of a powerful Greek state didn't inspire confidence in some of the less powerful Greek subjects. And this is where the history of the Peloponnesian War ends. Not the actual March of Time, of course, but the book written by Thucydides. Either the ancient Greeks weren't great at finishing their projects, or their heirs just sucked at preserving the last chapter of a good book. It's not as gargantuan a loss as Herodotus for our purposes. A lot of the familiar names like Theseus, Diodorus, Justin, etc., are just as useful as ever, with the occasional cameo from a source like Aristotle, 
and the endless list of Greek orators. But for a little bit now, it's best to be familiar with a name that's only been a background presence up to this point. We are now in the world of Xenophon. At this point in our story, he's just a young man in the Athenian army, wealthy, but certainly no oligarch. And I do not care how you want me to pronounce his name. Naturally, the course of his life will be profoundly shaped by the events to come. But Xenophon's legacy is really in his command of the Attic Greek language. He was a prolific writer with works of history, philosophy, instruction manuals, and a few biographies that combine elements of all three surviving down to this day. Despite being born and raised in Athens, he grew to have a deep appreciation for both Sparta and Persia. We will interact with a lot of his work. But for now, the big one to note is the Hellenica, a history of Greece from 411 to 362 BCE that picks up right where we left off. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. In November, the Spartan fleet from the Greek mainland came, but something went wrong. Their allies, sailing up from Rhodes, ran into a storm and were pushed aground on the south coast of the Hellespont. Athens sent a detachment to hunt them down, and Pharnabazus led his army to support the Rhodians by land while Sparta tried to sail out and provide aid at sea. The Spartans now outnumbered Athens 97-74, to 74. but the Athenian fleet held their own, and the Athenian marines were more adept at boarding and effectively disabling Spartan ships. The battle continued until Alcibiades arrived with an additional 18 Athenian ships from his sojourn in Caria. That prompted a Spartan retreat. The Rhodians retreated inland to the shelter of Pharnabazus' court, and both sides settled in for the winter. It's not altogether clear where the Spartans were staying, since they had just lost Abydos, but their commanders spent a lot of that time in Dasculeum, 30 kilometers or 20 miles inland, at Pharnabazus' satrapal capital. They were planning their spring offensive, and when spring came they successfully booted the Athenians out of the city of Cyzicus. But it was a temporary victory. The Athenians had split up their fleet for the winter into several separate garrisons. But when they reconvened at full power, 
they had 86 ships to Sparta's 60, and that included some constructed over the winter months. Alcibiades led 20 ships into the harbor at Cyzicus to prompt a Spartan response, and they took the bait. It was an ambush. Just out of sight, the Athenians were waiting like doors on either side of the harbor. Once the Spartans were out in open water, they swung shut and cut off the Spartan avenue of retreat, while Alcibiades swung around and sailed head-on at the Spartan ships. On land, Pharnabazus' forces repelled an Athenian landing party and tried to aid the Spartans with their archers, but the entirety of the Spartan fleet was destroyed or captured. The Persians were forced to abandon the Sea of Marmara once again as Athens took all of the major checkpoints in the grain trade. Then, and only then, did most of the fleet return to Athens in significant numbers right after the Council of 5000 had voted to restore the democratic constitution. Alcibiades returned with them, officially acquitted of any charges that sent him into exile. Back in Phrygia, many of the Spartans had abandoned ship before they were captured and got to shore. Their leading commander that year, Mindaros, was dead, and the survivors sent a short, simple letter home for further guidance. Xenophon recorded the text of the letter, Ships gone, Mindaros lost, men hungry, at a loss for what to do. It was Pharnabazus to the rescue. He and the local Persian garrison got the surviving Peloponnesian soldiers and sailors inland and to friendly territory. Once there, the Persian governor tried to reassure them, while continuing to pursue his own war efforts. He offered the Peloponnesians access to the vast forests of northern Anatolia to rebuild the fleet and paid out two full months' salary for every survivor, along with a new cloak. Both a practical necessity going into the cold months, and a traditional gift of friendship in Persian culture. While the fleet was being constructed, he hired and equipped the remaining Spartans as mercenaries, to defend the coastal settlements still under Persian control. This had the dual effect of keeping the Spartans happy and paid, and allowing Pharnabazus to dismiss his other soldiers, apparently a combination of mercenaries and local garrisons. The surviving crewmen from Syracuse, who had sailed all the way from Sicily to support their allies, were given a particularly special job. They were sent to Antandros, a port at the southwestern mouth of the Hellespont, which had revolted from Persian control. The trick was that it had revolted from Tissaphernes' Persian control. Before being taken by Athens, Antandros had been Phrygian territory, but Tissaphernes' army was the one that kicked the Athenians out and claimed it for Lydia. The satrap of Phrygia and Lydia were constantly competing with one another. We saw this all the way back in episode 24, when the Lydian satrap Aroitus made a play for independence and outright conquered his northern neighbor. Since then, competition in western Anatolia had been mediated by having a member of the royal family in Lydia and an established dynasty in Phrygia. Typically, 
those satraps were not the same age, and seniority managed to mediate competition. Now, though, Tissaphernes and Pharnabazus were both nobles from established noble families with indirect ties to the Achaemenids. They were apparently similar in many regards, and they had been competing for Spartan attention for the last five years. Is it any surprise they bickered over territory as well? And Tandros, in particular, was a port closest to the dense forests of tall fir trees, trees which were felled at a staggering pace to rebuild the Spartan fleet and join the war effort on Persia's behalf once again. Fortunately, the Ionian War stayed relatively quiet for a few years due to a surge of activity in Greece, where Spartan attempts to sue for peace after the Battle of Kizikos were rejected. Neither side was willing to accept anything but total surrender at this point, and both of them tried to negotiate any time they thought that might actually happen. It's part of why we're in year 22 of this conflict. In 409, Athens launched a major offensive to try and take the key Ionian port in Ephesus. At first, they made significant progress, taking two of the nearby towns with landing parties. The Athenians started raiding inland Lydia, prompting Tissaphernes to both march forward with a massive Lydian army, and all but beg the Spartan commanders to come help him. They did, and the Syracusans from Antandros were able to intercept the Athenians and defend Ephesus at sea, while Tissaphernes fought on land. To keep himself in Sparta's good graces, he resumed payments to the fleet, which now shifted its attention back to Lydia. By now, Athens had figured out what was happening, so in 408, Alcibiades besieged the city of Chalcedon in Phrygian territory. They worked quickly and took the city before Pharnabazus' army could arrive. From there, he moved on to Byzantium, which had quietly stopped sending money to Athens in favor of Pharnabazus again, which forced Pharnabazus to negotiate a truce in the Sea of Marmara, lest he lose more cities. This, in turn, led to a renewal in small-scale hostilities between the Greeks of Anatolia, the Peloponnesian fleet, and the Persians themselves. Garrisons were killed or evicted in several cities once again. Part of the problem really seems to be that Spartan military planning had always planned on the Persian fleet being part of this war. Darius II had no intention of risking another Salome or Eurymedon, and fair enough. The Persian fleet's luck against Athens has been bad enough that even I am starting to think they might have been cursed by a vengeful god. But by now, Darius was annoyed. He had elected to get involved following the Athenian catastrophe on Sicily when it looked like the war was already won. He had issued his command to bring the Anatolian Greeks back into the fold almost five years ago, and his satraps had only been half successful at best. They had about half the Greek cities, but all of that increased revenue and then some was just being funneled back into the Spartan fleet year after year. It certainly did not help 
that the satraps refused to coordinate with one another. A Spartan embassy, led by an ambassador called Boiatus, traveled to Susa and laid the situation out to Darius in person from their own perspective. They had correctly assessed that neither satrapal ally was telling an accurate story in their official reports. Darius II agreed to a new treaty with Sparta that would officially restore a degree of autonomy to the Greeks in his territory with a sort of home rule where they had no Persian oversight so long as they paid tribute. The king would also guarantee funding for his allies and in turn, Sparta would serve loyally and stay out of Persian business in the future. But the next stage of the war will have to wait. The story ballooned out of control with the presence of Sparta and Athens in the narrative again. So 73 will pick right back up in the court of Darius II in 408 BCE. And until next time, if you want more information about this show, go to historyofpersiapodcast.com where you can find stuff like my bibliography, the Achaemenid Family Tree, and the support page where you can financially support this project. That includes one-time payments through Stripe, all sorts of affiliate links, and Patreon subscriptions. That will get you access at patreon.com slash historyofpersia to things like bonus episodes and ad-free listening. But of course, there are always free ways to do this as well, the best of which is tell people how much you like this show on social media. You can find me at History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, or History of Persia on Twitter. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.